Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. A lot of prophets are now going to warn Israel that disaster is coming unless the people return to the covenant. What's happening where we left off yesterday is that the Israelites are getting more and more caught up in the paganism around them because they didn't do things God's way when he was trying to wipe out paganism from the land. They're getting more and more caught up in materialism, in comfort, and when things are going well, they've been forgetting God and remembering him only when things are going bad. Then they evolved into when things were going bad, they just tried doing things their way and they didn't even remember God then. So God needs to do something more drastic to get their attention. Because what's happening is they're headed for disaster. And God wants to save them from that. See, this is how sin affects our lives. It starts little and it just takes over if we let it. And it consumes more and more of our spirituality and we don't even see it happening. When we, like the Israelites, just go to God when things are going badly it becomes easier to also not only forget about him when things are going well, but it becomes easier to forget about him all the time. God is not a genie God who magically fixes things the way we want him to when things go badly. See, our spirituality grows a lot during the bad times. But if it's not also growing during the good times, if we're ignoring God during the good times, the easy times, we begin to get the idea that God is somebody who we don't need, but all of a sudden when we do need, we want him to be a magic genie and fix things the way we think they should be fixed because we're not looking at anything from his perspective. And all we're seeing is things from our perspective. And as we continue, this is what the Israelites were doing, as we continue to go in that direction, when things go bad and we're looking at things from our perspective we begin to start trying to fix it from our perspective. And when God doesn't cooperate with that, we begin to think, well, maybe he doesn't really care. Maybe he's not even alive. Maybe he's just very far away, busy on some other planet someplace. So the Israelites are getting more and more sucked into this deception from the pit of hell. The Israelites are headed towards disaster. Remember, all that covenant agreement was to protect the Israelites. And God was saying through the covenant agreement, if you do things my way, you will be protected. They will go well for you. Even in your struggles, your trials, the enemy's attacking, you will ultimately have victory. But if you don't do things my way, you're leaving my realm of protection. You're leaving my realm of help. And disaster is going to strike. I won't be there to protect you. I want to be there to protect you. But you're turned away from me, and I can't force you to turn back. You have to make that decision. But God gives us every opportunity down to the very last second to turn to him and to protect us. God, in the Old Testament, when we don't understand the Old Testament, we tend to think of him in terms of somebody who's into killing and punishment. But God was giving these people every opportunity to avoid the punishment. To avoid the disaster. And it wasn't a punishment that he decreed. Because he was decreeing, here's the way to avoid it. And they walked into the punishment. It's getting closer and closer to the whole Israelite nation being destroyed. 
or at least 99% of it because that one little remnant had to stay there in order to bring Jesus to the world. And even that one little percentage of remnant could still end up facing a lot of disaster unless they did things God's way and turned back to him, not just with their rules and regulations and rituals, but with their hearts. So he sends prophets to them, famous prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and, and many others, repeatedly, one after the other, more than one prophet at a time, to say, wake up, my people, and turn back to me, and fill your hearts and your lives with me before it's too late. Many of the public prophecies, public prophecies, these were not just individual to a king to try to straighten the king of Israel out, but these were for the whole nation to listen to, a wake-up call for everyone. Many of them are in the book of Isaiah. And they were delivered between 760 and 460 B.C. Not all were written by Isaiah himself. Some were written in his name, maybe by one of his disciples, or the disciple of the disciple of Isaiah, or someone who had studied Isaiah and his writings, and the Lord inspired to add to those writings as more prophecies. And prophecy, remember, does not mean foretelling the future. Prophecy means delivering a message from God. Sometimes that involved the future. But the main thing was, what is God saying? What's the message he's trying to get across? Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, is going to be facing the biggest difficulties because the tribe of Judah, which is going to produce Jesus, they have left behind. They've turned their backs on. So they have left God's protection more than the Judah tribe. And Israel is going to be destroyed. I'll show you how that happens. Fifty years before the final destruction, God starts sending the prophets to them big time. In Judah, the destruction that's going to come to them, God started the prophecies 150 years before. For the northerners, Israel, their fall, their destruction was going to happen in 722 B.C. The prophet Amos from whom we get the book of Amos, is one of the prophets who God sends right before their fall. They were growing increasingly materialistic and secular, and Amos was addressing that. We're not going to stop in the book of Amos right now, but if you do take time to read it, you'll see that it's a graphic detail of the obliteration of, of Israel that's going to come. It's like a wake-up call. Pay attention. Here's how it's going to happen. Let me get detailed for you so that you'll be so grossed out you'll turn to God. And it didn't work. The prophet Hosea, from which we get the book of Hosea, also was then sent to the Israelites. And it's an interesting way that God got or tried to get the attention of the Israelites through Hosea. Hosea may not have been a real person. Or the story that's in the book of Hosea may not have happened exactly the way it was. The book of Hosea is a parable. A parable to get the people's attention. And here's basically what the parable says. Hosea was an ordinary person and he listened to God. It comes right after the book of Daniel. The prophetic books are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Baruch, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. And then Joel and then Amos who we just mentioned. We're going to do a little jumping around now because I'm going to stick with the chronological order. That's not the order that they're in in the Bible. So use your table of contents if you want to stick with me. 
The table of contents is something you should become very familiar with anyway, so that you can feel real comfortable getting around the Bible without having to memorize the order of everything. So Hosea was an ordinary person, and he was in very close communication with God, and God told him who to marry. And he had three children by this wife. God chose their names, and their names were symbolic. One child was named God Scatters. Can you imagine in the hospital, the nurse says, okay, what name do you want to put on the birth certificate? God Scatters. And how about the name of his second child? Not Loved. And the third child was Not My People. These were symbolic names to show the Israelites who the Israelites had become, what kind of a people they had become. And in this parable, this story, Hosea's wife runs off and leaves him, becomes a prostitute, and ends up a slave. And this, too, is symbolic of what Israel has been doing. Israel has been prostituting itself to other gods and has ended up enslaved by those other beliefs. Just as we get enslaved by our addictions, by our false gods. And God then tells Amos to go and buy his wife back, buy her out of slavery, and love her again, forgive her and love her. Because this is an example of what God is going to do with Israel. Well, these prophets are coming to Israel with these messages, and Israel is not turning back to God. A neighboring kingdom, Assyria, is growing strong, and it's spreading its territory, conquering the lands, and getting closer and closer to Israel. Israel's king at the time, Menahem, tried to protect Israel from the Assyrians, not by turning to God for help, but by bribing Assyria. Now, the prophet Amos, who I just mentioned before, Hosea, warns the king and the people that the only plan that's going to work is relying on God and his mercy. That this king's plan is not going to work. But not listening, one of the officers of the Israelite army... His name is Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, decides to come up with a third plan. You know, there's the king's plan to bribe, God's plan to do things his way. And Pekah comes up with the idea of setting up a counter-Israeli government. Because he doesn't like the way the king's handling it, so he's trying to handle it his own way. He sets up a counter-government, and civil war begins. And you know what happens with civil war. The country gets even weaker. Assyria then comes in and conquers Israel... And the captives are deported out of Israel. And this is how we get the ten lost tribes of Israel. Ever hear about the ten lost tribes? They're all deported from the land. It's in the second book of Kings, somewhere between chapter 13 and 17. The ten lost tribes happened about 700 years before Christ came along. About the time in history where this is happening... God produces another parable to try to teach a lesson to the people. And it's the book of Jonah. It's a fictitious story, probably written in the 5th century before Christ. In this story, God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is the one who has just captured Israel and deported all the northerners. Now, Jonah does not want to do this because... Assyria is the conquering nation. Not only were they the conquering nation, but listen to their methods of the way they conquered their people. They demolished buildings. Okay, that's usually what happens. They slaughtered the animals. Okay, they're a little bit rougher. 
They skinned the people alive. Do you think Jonah wanted to go and tell these people that God loves them? Jonah did not want to believe that God could possibly love somebody that much. Somebody who's that bad. When they killed the people they attacked, they beheaded them and stacked the heads on heaps so that people would be more afraid of them. They mutilated their leaders and they ruled by terror. And Jonah knows, he's given a message to go and tell the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to repent, to change from their ways. And he knows God enough to realize that if they repent, God's not going to kick their butt. He's not going to punish them. And Jonah represents the Israelites who were very prejudiced against their enemies, as is a natural thing to happen. What do we want to do with our enemies? We want God to inflict justice on them. They've been causing misery to us. We want them to have their dose of misery. If they repent, we want them to get punished first so that they have to suffer some kind of consequence for what they've done. So Jonah does not want to go and preach this message of repentance. And we know what happens to him. He goes for a swim and gets eaten up by a a big fish. In Matthew 12, if you keep your finger wherever you've got it in the Bible, if you happen to be at Jonah, but if you go to Matthew 12, verse 40, what's happening here, just to put it into context, is scribes and Pharisees are challenging Jesus, and they're asking for a sign. And in verse 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's the sign to look for. The sign of Jonah. This story of Jonah is not just the story to the Israelites of that day saying, God loves everybody and wants everybody to repent. You Israelites, he wants to repent. But part of what you need to repent from is your prejudices against the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, God also wants repentance from and wants to give mercy to and save them from destruction too. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to say. Jesus came first to the Israelites. But we know that he also came for the Gentiles, the non-Israelites. Israel had been formed from the very beginning by God to be a family and to be a close-knit family. But in the process of developing that nationalism, that sense of family as a nation, in the process, they began to develop prejudices against anybody who wasn't one of them. They still had that when Jesus was there, and they still had that when the apostles were spreading the good news. Peter himself had some of that prejudice when he was the Pope. Peter had to be given a vision by God to go ahead and preach to the Gentiles and bring the good news to the Gentiles and the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The vision is what changed Peter's mind. So God here is both in the early, earlier Israelite days and in Jesus' day is trying to communicate through the references to Jonah that God gives mercy to anyone who repents And the whole world belongs to God's family. What happens in the book of Jonah? When the fish spits him out, he gets the point. God's not going to let him off the hook. He's going to have to do this job. He tells the Ninevites to repent. They repent immediately. And he gets mad. Darn it all. I was wishing they wouldn't repent. I wish they were like us who refused to repent. 
Because then God would punish them. He gets mad at God for forgiving them. And God teaches him, see this is a parable with a moral at the end of the story. God teaches him that he is concerned about everyone. Okay, moving down to the prophets who were warning Judah of their impending disaster. Isaiah is born. Isaiah received his first vision when he was young, wealthy and well-educated. He belonged to Judah. He was a southerner. And as a young, wealthy, well-bred, everything came to him easy man, he had a bad mouth. He had problems with his language. And he was full of malice and deceit. He wasn't a very nice guy to have as a friend. And yet God chose him to be perhaps the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Because God recognized that somewhere underneath all that deceit and malice and bad language, Isaiah had a heart for his people and for his God. And when he was called to ministry, Isaiah said, But God, how could you possibly use me because of all the sin that I'm caught up in? And God said, I can take care of that. If you're willing, I'll do something about it. And Isaiah was willing. So he had a vision in which an angel came and seared his mouth with a hot burning coal from the altar of the temple. And this represented that he was being cleansed from his sins. His mouth, his language was being cleansed. And it also sealed his mission for God. Keep in mind, this is what's happening to Isaiah This is how God is preparing Isaiah to do his ministry. And while that's happening, let me get back into the story of what's happening to Israel up north. What was left of Israel began to try to protect themselves from the Assyrians trying to capture the rest of them and take over the land entirely. There was a remnant left. And this little remnant allied with Syria against Assyria. Instead of allying with God, they allied with Syria. And Israel told the tribe of Judah, the southern people, that if they don't join this alliance, Israel would take over Judah. There's a lot of threatening and sibling rivalry going on here. While this threat is going on, Judah, the territory of Judah and the king of Judah, is getting, of course, more and more nervous. Assyria is soon to become a threat to not just the northern tribes, but Judah too. And Ahaz became the king of Judah in 732 B.C., facing this situation. He was a weak, amoral, and vain man. The way he tried to solve the problems was to pay the king of Assyria, bribe him. And in doing this, he sold Judah to Assyria. Judah now belonged to Assyria. God told Isaiah... Go to this king Ahaz and do something about this. Tell Ahaz that his plan is not going to work. And by the way, this is in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, speaking for God, tells Ahaz that he should not worry about Israel and Israel's alliance with Syria because their threat is not going to last anyways. Just trust God. What they're worried about is really no big deal. Ahaz, not being a God-fearing man, doesn't believe God. So Isaiah said, okay, King Ahaz, if you're not going to believe God, ask God to give you a sign. 
ask for proof that this really is from God. And Ahaz's response is, well, um, Isaiah, uh, no, I don't really want to ask God for a sign. I don't want to ask God for proof because if he gives it to me, I'm going to have to believe in him. And then I'm going to have to do things his way and give up my way. Uh, no thanks. So Isaiah says, well, tough noogies, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. You won't ask for it, I'll give it to you. And here's the sign, and this is starting with verse 14 in chapter 7. A virgin will bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Sound familiar? And we know that Emmanuel means God is with us. So this sign also means that a virgin is going to bear a son, and this son will indicate, will tell the world or tell the world of Judah that God is with them. Part of this sign, this prophecy, is that before the boy reaches his teens, Assyria will wipe out both Syria and Israel. Remember, Syria and Israel is who Ahaz was concerned about was going to attack. So, before this boy is a teen, the threat you're worried about isn't going to exist anymore. And this prediction did come true 13 years after Isaiah spoke it. That's the first level of the prediction. The second deeper meaning we know was fulfilled with Christ. The virgin that bore the son 13 years after Isaiah spoke it did not remain a virgin. She got married. She had a child by normal means. This was just simply a sign for Ahaz and the people of the day. But God took this prophecy more literally later on to speak about Jesus and his blessed mother. Ahaz was not impressed with this prophecy and he went ahead with his own plan. And because the Assyrians were getting closer, Ahaz made copies, ordered copies of the Assyrian altars to their gods and had them built in Jerusalem. He closed down the temple of Yahweh, all to impress the enemy as his way of protecting Judah. The bronze altar that had been used in the heart of Jerusalem, the heart of Judah, the heart of Israel, the bronze altar to worship Yahweh with was used for divination, the occult. And Ahaz started the um, practice of child sacrifice, sexual rites, and spirit channeling. Isaiah is filled with prophecies that not only address the issues of the day, but also address the long-term goal of God, which was producing Jesus in the world. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 22, it's another neat one that I want to point out. And go to verse 22. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and started the papacy that way? See, even that was prophesied in the Old Testament. All right. Now, Micah, another one of the books in the Old Testament, another prophet. Micah is living at the same time as Isaiah, and he joins Isaiah in prophesying warnings. And he prophesies that what's left of Israel, which is really basically the capital, which is Samaria. Remember how Samaria was built as an alternative to Jerusalem for those who lived in the northern tribes. And that's about all that's left, really. All that has any kind of power at all. 
Micah prophesies that this little bit, this Samaria, is going to fall. And he also prophesies that Judah is going to fall and the people are going to be exiled to Babylon. Now, Babylon's not even a threat yet. He prophesies further that a remnant is going to be freed by God. And a king, out of this remnant, a king from the line of David, is going to reign in the last days. And this king is going to be born in David's hometown, Bethlehem. The prophecies are to serve a purpose for the day to get the people to turn to God, to avoid disaster. And they are also to speak to the rest of the world about Jesus Christ, which happened a little later. And they're also to speak to us much after Christ, 2,000 years after Christ, to indicate to us the importance of Jesus really being our Savior. Well, like the Israelites up north, Judah's not listening real well. Isaiah is given a miraculous opportunity, though, to make a difference. A new king, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, takes the throne. And before he becomes king, Ahaz looks for somebody to groom him into being a king, to prepare him for the job. Miraculously, Isaiah is picked for this. Now remember, Isaiah is the one who had this little argument with Ahaz about the sign. But miraculously, God puts Isaiah in the role of grooming his son. And of course, Isaiah is going, praise the Lord, hallelujah! And he takes Hezekiah and forms him into a man who loves God. Here's hope at last that things are going to get better. If Judah has a king who loves the Lord, maybe the whole nation will turn to the Lord. In 715 is when Ahaz dies and Hezekiah takes over. His first act as king is to reopen God's temple and get rid of all the occult worship, all the Assyrian God worship. And he throws a rededication party. A big, lavish, expensive, hallelujah, it's God again party. And he invited not only all of his own people in Judah to this party, but whoever was left in the northern territories who had not been deported, he invited all of them. Let's get back together in unity and focus on the Lord and celebrate the Lord. Therefore, he was reuniting the people. However, despite the fact that the people enjoyed the party, their hearts didn't really change. They ignored the help that God was offering, and Judah plunged deeper and closer to more and more destruction. In 701 B.C., Assyria attacks Judah, and only a small remnant survives. In 687 B.C., Hezekiah, this God-loving king, dies. And his son, Manasseh, becomes king. He reigns for 55 years. And during this time, he put up pagan altars. He put up pagan fertility poles in God's temple. He sacrificed his own infant son to the Assyrian god. He consulted mediums and practiced sorcery. He executed anyone who opposed him. The people got the kind of king in Manasseh that fit who they were. And God keeps reaching out to them and keeps calling the people to become what he created them to be. He reminds them over and over again through the prophets that apart from him, there is no Savior. They're looking for a Savior now. They're looking for somebody to save them from all of the enemies that keep conquering them and deporting them. 
we'll look at Isaiah 49 to see this. But through the prophets, not just Isaiah, he speaks to the Israelites about the true servant who is the true Savior. Chapter 49, verse 6. It is too little, he says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Judah and restore the survivors of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Talking about the true Savior that's going to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah that the Israelites are becoming real desperate for. And he's saying, this Savior is not going to just be for my Israel people. He's going to come for the whole world. This was something that God was trying to change the people's hearts on because they couldn't believe that God, they didn't want to believe that God would come for anybody, would save anybody but themselves. That's closed-minded thinking. That's all they wanted. They wanted everybody else to get punished. Part of Isaiah's prophecy is that the servant is going to be a ruler filled with God's spirit. He's going to be gentle to the weak. He's going to restore the tribes of Jacob, Israel. And he's going to be a light to all other nations. Turn to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 51, 52, 53, and forward. They're all dealing with the same thing. I don't know if yours has subtitles, but my subtitle for chapter 50 is Salvation Comes Only Through the Lord's Servant. That's what this one's about. 51, Exhortation to Trust in the Lord. 52, Let Zion Rejoice. Why? Because, look at verse 7 in chapter 52. See if you recognize these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings glad tidings. Some versions say good news. Announcing peace, bearing good news, announcing salvation, saying to Zion, your God is king. That song, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We consider that our theme song for the ministry, good news ministries. Did you know I had beautiful feet? Did you know you have beautiful feet? Yes, you do. God sees that if you're bearing good news, your feet are gorgeous. It's right there in the Bible. God doesn't lie. Isaiah has a vision. One of his visions is of the desert blooming, blossoming with new springs and new life. The first day at the very beginning I mentioned that whenever you see water in the Bible, think of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah is also prophesying the coming of the Holy Spirit. For all people, not just the few prophets. Isaiah is also telling the people that life is going to be restored to those who are spiritually dead. Through this vision of the blossoming, of this life springing out of the desert. Look at chapter 53, verse 4. It was our infirmities that he bore, our sufferings that he endured. By his stripes we were healed. See, all of this is about... Life coming to those of us who are dead spiritually, and it comes through Jesus being our Savior. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.